0: Wild Stories from Western Australia's Past. Hello and welcome to Wild Stories from Western Australia's Past. I'm your host, writer, storyteller and history nerd Carly Florison. Thanks so much for joining me today and wow, it's been such a long time coming this episode. Between some sicknesses and some deadlines that we've had and just general busyness, it's really taken me a long time to actually knuckle down and get this episode out. So thank you everyone so much for your patience in waiting for this episode to be ready. And as usual, I really think you're going to like this one. This is a fantastic Western Australian story. It might not be quite as dramatic as some of the other stories, but it's a story of writing injustice, fighting for what's fair, and laying the foundation for the laws that we now have for industrial relations and some other things in our country. First of all, as usual, I'd like to acknowledge the First Nations people of this land, and in particular, the First Nations people of the Pilbara region. Now, there are more than 30 different Aboriginal cultural groups in the Pilbara, And I'd like to acknowledge them all, in particular, as the first people of the land where this story takes place. I'd also like to acknowledge the Noongar people of the Esperance area, which is where I'm recording today. The First Nations people have a history and connection to this land that goes back tens of thousands of years. And I'd like to pay my respects to their elders, past and present. So, this is the story of the Pilbara Strike. If you've never heard of the Pilbara Strike, well, it's a pretty great story. The Indigenous people of the area fought injustice and took on the big station owners. What were they fighting for and what happened in the end? Well, I guess you'll just have to keep listening to find out. Before we get into this story, though, I'd just like to add a bit of a content warning on this one. This episode does deal quite a bit with some of the terrible ways that Indigenous people were mistreated, and some of these stories could be distressing for some listeners. So maybe this isn't one to listen to with young children, for example. This story starts in 1946. At that time, there were many large stations in the Pilbara area of Western Australia. These days, we know the the Pilbara as a region that is dominated by mining, but in those days, the economy of the Pilbara depended on big stations, running mostly sheep and later on cattle. These stations were dependent on Aboriginal people for labour, but the Aboriginal people who lived on the stations were paid very little for their labour. Often they were only paid rations of tea, flour, sugar and tobacco. And the living conditions on these stations were terrible for the Aboriginal people who worked there. And often the station owners and managers would beat, whip or otherwise mistreat them. One particular incident where something like this happened was known as the Bendu Atrocity. And this took place on the Bendu Cattle Station in 1897 in the Pilbara region. Six Aboriginal workers ran away from the Bendu station, apparently because some sheep had run away and they were afraid of being punished. They were recaptured by Ernest and Alexander Anderson, who were the station owner and the station owner's brother, who proceeded to beat them severely. So one elderly man and two women died later on that day, and another man and two girls were left for dead, but they survived. After this incident, Ernest and Alexander Anderson were fined two pounds and issued with a warning about their behaviour. So there was a public outrage about this, thankfully, and the police upgraded the charge against them to the charge of murder. Alexander Anderson died in prison while waiting for his trial, and Ernest Anderson was tried for murder, but was found guilty on the charge of manslaughter. So for the charge of, uh, of beating to death these three Aboriginal people, he ended up serving only six years in prison. From that time period, things did improve somewhat on the stations in the Pilbara, thanks partly to the public outcry, but things were still not really great there. So you might say, why didn't the Aboriginal people who were living and working on the stations just leave? Well, legally, they couldn't. In 1905, the Aborigines Act was passed by the Western Australian Parliament. According to this Act, the station owners could get permits to employ, and I use the word employ here very loosely as they were more more like slave-like conditions, they could employ Aboriginal people on their stations. And then by law, these Aboriginal people could not leave the stations without a permit. So as you can imagine, it was quite easy for the station owners to make a lot of money when they didn't have to pay their workforce very much, and many of these station owners became very wealthy. Before we get into that though, let me just give you a little bit of background on the Pilbara region. For those of you who don't know, the Pilbara is located in the north of Western Australia, encompassing Karatha, Port Hedland and Newman, as well as the Hammersley Range and the stunningly beautiful Karajini National Park. If you get the opportunity, absolutely go and visit. It's a dry, hot region and Marble Bar in the Pilbara is regularly Australia's hottest place. The temperature in summer often exceeds 49 degrees. Aboriginal people have lived in the Pilbara for many thousands of years, usually living around the large rivers in the area. It's an absolutely beautiful place with really stunning, vivid landscapes, well worth a visit. And of course, further to the north is the Kimberley region. European settlement in the Pilbara started in the 1860s after the explorer Francis Gregory surveyed the area and reported back that there was good grazing land in the Pilbara, particularly around the Harding River, the Fortescue River and the De Grey River, which Gregory had named after the Earl De Grey. A man by the name of Walter Padbury was one of the first settlers in the area. Technically he was a squatter. He set up on the traditional lands of the Nyamal people around the De Grey River. Padbury's venture wasn't successful and he went back to Perth. Eventually, the suburb of Padbury in Perth was named for him. John and Emma Withnell were also early settlers in the Pilbara. They established the Mount Welcome Station on the Harding River in 1864. You might recognise Emma's maiden name. Before she married John Withnell, she was Emma Hancock. More on the Hancock family in a minute. Interestingly, Emma Withnell, who had 11 children of her own, developed really good relationships with the local Aboriginal people. She nursed many Indigenous people through the smallpox epidemic which hit the area, which of course is ironic because if the white settlers hadn't come to the area, the Indigenous people wouldn't have got smallpox in the first place. Anyway, despite Emma's good relationships with the local people, John Withnall was involved in what was called the Flying Foam Massacre, which took place in the Dampier Archipelago. According to official records, at least 15 Jabirara people were killed in this massacre, including some children. But it is more likely that many more Jabirara people were killed during that, during the massacre. Some reports say 40 people, some reports say up to 100 This was just one of several massacres that took place in the Pilbara during this time period. Of course, the pastoralists who were moving into the Pilbara were also taking the best grazing land for their stock and using the water and the best land that the area had to offer. All of these things impacted the First Nations people who were living in the area. Ashburton Down Station was established by a group of investors from Northam in the 1880s. One of these investors was George Thurussell, who was the second Premier of Western Australia. In 1892, Thurussell sold his share in Ashburton Downs to John Hancock, who was Emma Withnell's brother. Of course, you might be familiar with John Hancock's grandson, Lang Hancock, who grew up on another station in the Pilbara, Mulga Downs Station. And I'm sure you know Lang Hancock's daughter, Gina Reinhardt, who is currently Australia's richest person. Now, of course, Lang Hancock and later on Gina Reinhardt went on to ultimately make their fortunes in mining, also in the Pilbara. But I think that the point I'm trying to make here is that there was a great deal of money to be made and potentially lost on the stations in the Pilbara. Anyway, back to our story. As I mentioned, the conditions on the stations for the Aboriginal workers were terrible. In some ways, it was very similar to feudalism in Europe, the workers didn't have a choice but to work and they were deliberately kept in poverty and not given access to education so that their choices and autonomy would be limited. Some of the men were paid for their stock work, but it was a pretty small wage. It was usually between 10 shillings and pound one te- ten a week. And this, too, could be a trap, as the station owners would then deduct money from a person's wages for clothing or rations from the station shop, and so the workers would find themselves unable to ever get out of debt to the station owners. Then they'd have to keep working for the stations due to their debt. Women were often employed in the station houses, doing household chores, cooking and cleaning. The women were very rarely paid actual wages. The station also controlled access to the land, and so the Indigenous people who wanted to remain on their traditional lands in connection with their country and their relatives had no choice but to cooperate with the station owners. There was also an unwritten law that the station owners would not employ Aboriginal people from other stations, and that was enforced by the police, so they couldn't go to another station that was offering better conditions. The station owners would give the Aboriginal people leeway to attend their traditional ceremonies, but they would expect them to be back within a certain time period for work. And here are a couple of quotes. This is according to Billy Thomas. If anyone stayed away for longer than two weeks, they'd send the police out after us, and the police would hunt us back to work on the station. Another quote from Peter Coppin. In those days, police and station owners worked together. Anyone run away, bang him in jail, ring up the boss and say, I got your boy in jail, what about come and pick him up? And another quote. In 1944, after several stations complained about that their workers had failed to return from a holiday, the local policemen moved among the Indigenous people into attending an initiation ceremony. They saw that several parties of natives started for their home stations when the proceedings were over. These sources are from an article written by Anne Scrimmager and if you want any more information about my sources, they will be on my website. More information at the end of this podcast. There was also constant fear of violence for the Aboriginal people working on the stations. As late as the 1940s, Aboriginal people who were arrested would be transported in chains. Physical violence was often used by the station owners and even their wives and the police would often raid Aboriginal camps. And in a tactic that was unnecessarily cruel, they'd often shoot the dogs that belonged to the Aboriginal people. These were also the years of the stolen generation, and so there was also the fear of children being taken away, in particular children that were deemed to be half-caste children. The stations were often seen as able to protect the workers from having their children taken away, but this protection, of course, came with obligations. So this takes us up to the 1940s. In the early years of the 1940s, many of the Aboriginal workers were discussing what they could do to help themselves, to get out of this situation that they found themselves in. At one point, a couple of Aboriginal workers were working with a man called Don MacLeod. Don MacLeod was known to be a bit of a troublemaker. He was called a white stirrer. He was involved in some different political activism, and he was also a member of the Australian Communist Party. A couple of Aboriginal station workers talked to MacLeod about their dissatisfaction with the conditions on the stations. One of these workers was a Nyapali man called Kitchener. Kitchener was known to be a very good station hand. He was skilled as a stockman, a blacksmith, a saddle maker and a mechanic. And despite all of this, he was unpaid for his work. Another one of these workers who was involved in the early conversations with McLeod was Clancy McKenna, who was the son of pastoralist Morris McKenna and Nyamal woman Nellie. Clancy McKenna was a fencing and well-sinking contractor and he earned better wages than most Indigenous men, but he was still unhappy about the fact that he couldn't earn the same wages as white men. Don MacLeod told these men that a strike might work as a way to get better conditions. After these initial conversations, about 200 Indigenous lawmen met to discuss the strike. They decided that they would put the strike off until after the end of World War II. And in 1946, they began to organise. Along with Don McLeod and the original organisers, Nyangamata man Dooley Binbin and Niamal man Peter Coppen, also joined as organisers. They decided that the strike would start on the 1st of May, which happened to be the start of shearing season. Dooley Bin drew up rough calendars on the back of old jam tin labels and distributed them to the different stations, always pretending to be somebody's visiting relative. The workers on the stations marked off the days on the jam tin calendars, and despite this very rough system, it was remarkable how many Aboriginal workers walked off the job on the 1st of May, 1946. The pastoralists heard rumours about the upcoming strike, and they told the police to do something about it. But the police said that the Aboriginal workers weren't capable of organising a strike, Still, at least one police constable travelled around some of the station, threatening the workers with being sent to jail in chains if they did strike. But it was not enough to deter them. Hundreds of station workers walked off their stations on the 1st of May, heading to the strike camps, which were sometimes hundreds of kilometres away. There were two main strike camps, one near Marble Bar and one near Port Hedland. And at the height of the strike... Around 800 Indigenous station workers around the Pilbara went on strike. Not just the men, the women, who were usually domestic workers, also went on strike. The police started to crack down immediately on the strikers, and many of the leaders were arrested, including Dooley Binbin Bin and Clancy McKenna. After a huge public outcry, Binbin Bin and McKenna were released early. After this, the workers decided that they wouldn't resist and if they were going to be arrested, they would fill the jails. Here's a quote from the article by Anne Scrimmager. During the course of the strike, during the course of the strike, Mangu, that is the Indigenous people, came to view imprisonment as a badge of honour in their struggle for better conditions and the use of police intimidation and fear of imprisonment became an increasingly ineffective means of control. At this time, Aboriginal people were not allowed to enter Port Hedland. A large group of the strikers converged on Port Hedland around the time that the races were starting, and they were told by the police that they could not come into the town. In a show of defiance, a group of 150 of the strikers walked into Port Hedland and set up camp at, at an area which was known as Two Mile. Given the normal threats of violence and imprisonment from the police, this was quite a show of courage and defiance. And what could the police do? Arrest all 150 of them? In the end, the strike went on for three years, and it essentially crippled the stations in the Pilbara. At first, the police response was quite punitive, and many of the strikers were arrested. As a result, in support of the Strikers, the Seamen's Union in, S- in Fremantle imposed a black ban on shipping wool from the Pilbara, which further impacted the wool industry there. This ban didn't last long, as the Department of Native Affairs rushed to an agreement with the Strikers. This agreement didn't last. After pressure from the pastoralists, the Department of Native Affairs went back on their word. But still, it was a concession from the Department of Native Affairs that things needed to change. Also, not, on the, not all of the stations went on strike at the same time. A Nyangamata woman called Daisy Bindi, who wasn't involved in the original strike action, took action later on. At the time, she was an unpaid house girl at Roy Hill Station. And after the station management promised wage increases, but then didn't deliver on these promises... Daisy organised a walk-off of the station workers from Roy Hill. For the station workers who went on strike, getting better pay and condition was only part of what they wanted. More than that, they wanted autonomy and control over their own lives. In the strike camps, the strikers had to provide for themselves. They organised themselves into groups, with different groups fishing, hunting kangaroos or collecting pearl shells to sell, and they were also involved in surface mining for tin, and collecting seeds to sell. They were not only able to provide for themselves, they were also able to be financially independent for the first time. In 1949, the indigenous workers were given the the right to award wages. So after 3 long years, they had essentially won their fight with the pastoralists. The wages that they were given were not equal to the wages that white workers were given but at least there was to be a mandated award rate for station workers. They didn't win the right to have equal wages to white workers until after the Wave Hill strike in the Northern Territory. But even after this win many of the strikers did not go back to the stations. They stayed in these cooperative camps supporting themselves by mining and hunting. As well as the surface mining for tin, they had discovered some valuable deposits of columbite and wolfram, and they made enough money that some groups were even able to buy stations of their own, which included Warrilong Station, Strelly Station, and Yandiyara Station. One of the main objectives of the group was gaining education for themselves and for their young people. They set up a mining cooperative, which was very successful in the short term, but it collapsed in the mid 1950s. They then broke into a couple of groups and formed other mining cooperatives in the late 1950s. One of these groups was led by Don MacLeod and it was called Pindon. And Pindon is the Aboriginal word for the land in the Pilbara. When Don MacLeod resigned from the board of Pindon in 1959, it became an entirely Aboriginal run corporation. Some of these cooperatives and corporations still exist today, and they are successfully running several stations still to this day in the Pilbara. And so in some ways, the strikers did achieve what they set out to do, not only achieving better wages and better conditions on the station, but also achieving autonomy and financial independence for themselves. Stations in the Pilbara mostly these days run cattle and, of course, the mining industry dominates the economy of the area. The Pilbara Strike has been written about and documented in many different ways. By the poet Dorothy Hewitt, by several books and memoirs, documentary films such as How the West Was Lost and an award-winning play called Yandy. And if you're ever in Canberra, you might notice four streets named after the strikers. Clancy McKenna Crescent, Dooley Binbin Bin Street, Peter Coppin Street, and Don MacLeod Lane. And so that's the story of the Pilbara strike. I think it's a really remarkable episode in Western Australia's history. And I'd also like to just mention that, of course, although the cooperatives and the corporations that these groups set up provided them with financial independence. This certainly doesn't take away from the many, many years of violence and oppression that these Aboriginal people suffered, and also for the many years of stolen wages where they were not paid for their labour. Um, and I think that definitely has, um, has had a long-lasting effect on Aboriginal people um, to this day. Hopefully we are now taking some steps to right the wrongs of those of the past, and that is a good thing. Let's hope that we continue to do that. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And I, as I said, thanks again for your patience. It was a really long time in coming. Really love um, getting some feedback from you. So if there's any feedback that you'd like to give me, please do get in touch. You can get hold of me um, via my website. And of course, there's some information about the sources that I've used in preparing this podcast on that website as well. Uh, the address for that is www.wildwapodcast.com. You can email me, wildwapodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can get hold of me on Twitter. I'm at Carly Florison. And I'm also on Facebook. Just look up Carly Florison Writer. Yeah, as I said, once again, it'd be really lovely to get your feedback. And please do subscribe to this podcast so that you know when our new episodes come out as well. As it has been a really long time in between episodes, I've got another one for you coming really soon. So stay tuned for that. And that should be really interesting too. So once again, I'm your host, Carly Florison, and I've really enjoyed your company. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you next time. Stay tuned for another episode coming really soon.